someone tell me this morning, Isaiah, and it's, again, it's, it's poetry. Poetry is always harder than prose. You always have to, to think more, and Isaiah feels like he's all over the place. He's not, but it feels like that sometimes. So if you are feeling like, oh, this is hard, that's because it is, but it is so worth it. And just like with anything in life, the harder it is, the more exciting it is when you're finally like, oh, okay, I understood, you know, maybe 10% of that. Um, so anyway, well, let me open it in a word of prayer, and then we will dig in. We are in chapters 7 through 12. We won't get to chapter 12, um, but we will get through chapter 11. So, Father, I thank you so much for these women. I thank you for just the privilege of gathering with them and standing here in front of them and just the... Uh, the privilege it is to teach your word um, to actual people. Uh, we, we know what it's like to not be able to do that, to not be able to gather in a room and not be able to sit around tables and chat. And I just, ah, man, I don't ever want to forget how, um, how much of a blessing that is and how just want you to know how thankful we are that you allow us to do this. Uh, Lord, I pray that your spirit would illuminate your word this morning as I know he has been throughout the week, as we have been marinating in these chapters. God, I thank you for the struggle. I thank you for um, even hard passages. And I thank you for how exciting it is when you finally kind of get a grap- grip on what, what's going on. And I pray that um, we would just have that excitement this morning as we walk through these together. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear hearts to respond um, to all that you would want to teach us through the experience of Ahaz and Judah and Israel and all the things that are going on, Um, so very relevant and practical to our lives, even today, all these years later. We thank you for the beautiful, beautiful portrait of Jesus that we get in these passages, and I pray that they would lead us to treasure him more. We love you so much, and we ask these things in his name. Amen. All right, I do want to say, now I'm feeling really great right now. I woke up with a terrible migraine. I took a lot of medicine. So again, I might be totally fine after this and be able to hang out. I had to leave early last week, so I definitely don't want to leave early again. Um, But if I slip out, it's because the medicine has worn off or I took too much and I feel super weird and I just need to go home and go lay down. So but I'm doing great right now, so we'll see how it goes. I just, I never want to be like, I don't know. I've been in situations where, like, the diva teacher shows up, does her thing, and then, like, goes home. And I don't ever want, ever want to do that or imply that I would want to do that. So just a word about that. If I leave, that's why. Um, all right, so today's lesson is going to be bookended by two missionary stories. The first is from the life of Amy Carmichael, who's best known for her work among the orphans of India in the early to mid-1900s. The part of her biography that has stuck with me the most is actually way before she makes it to India and begins her work there. It's the goodbye. It's the goodbye. And I'm going to read you, uh, this is from A Chance to Die, which is a biography of of Amy Carmichael. I just want to read you a little excerpt describing um, this very difficult goodbye that she experienced. It says, A few weeks that remained before she was to part with her beloved fathery were filled with anguish. Mr. Wilson, the father figure to her, 
believed God had given her to him as if she were his own lost daughter, brought back from the dead, and his flesh and his heart failed at the prospect of Broughton Grange without Amy. No doubt she kept her sunny disposition with him, and they comforted each other with the promises of Scripture that anyone who relinquishes any footing for the Lord's sake will not go unrewarded. But there were times alone in her room when all the waves and billows washed over her. And this is a quote. Never, I think, not even in heaven, shall I forget that parting, Amy wrote 52 years later. It was such a rending thing that I never wanted to repeat it. Even now, my heart winces at the thought of it, end quote. At about the same time, she told a friend which she had never told anyone. Quoting again. The night I sailed for China, March 3rd, 1893, my life on the human side was broken, and it was never mended again. But he has been enough. I love that. I love that. I share that with you because today's passage is all about the enoughness of God. It's all about the decision every single one of us has to make when life happens, when it gets hard, and we find ourselves facing a crisis of faith. Will we trust God or will we seek out some other savior? Will we lean on him or will we lean on our own understanding? Will we rest in his sufficiency or our own striving? And these are the questions we are faced with all the time. And how do we get to a place where we can say, along with Amy, you know what, my life on the human side, it was broken and it was never mended again. But God has been enough. I believe that today's passage holds the answer to how we do that. Let's go ahead, open to chapter 7 of the book of Isaiah. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. It says, This took place during the reign of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. Now, we learned last week that Uzziah had just died. All right, so we're moving along in the historical timeline. Uh, Aram's king Rezin. Now, Aram and Syria are interchangeable, all right? Aram, or Syria's king Rezin, and Israel's king Pekah, son of Romalia, went to fight against Jerusalem, but they were not able to conquer it. All right, let's stop right there because there's a lot of history packed into that one verse, and we don't have an idea of what's going on. None of these chapters are going to make a whole lot of sense to us. Now, the first name mentioned there is Ahaz, all right? So he is the king of Judah, which is the southern kingdom of Israel. And I mentioned this before, but it bears repeating. Really, really important. Remember, at this time, Israel and Israel's history, they are split in two. They had actually been split for about 200 years at this point. All right, so there's the northern kingdom, which is made up of the majority of the tribes of Israel. The capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria. And the northern kingdom is referred to either as Israel as if that's not confusing, um, Israel, Ephraim, because that was the largest tribe, or Jacob, 
All right, so those would be names that refer to the northern kingdom. Now, it was an illegitimate kingdom ruled by one terrible king after another. All right, a lot of bad guys up there in the north. The southern kingdom is made up of only two tribes of Israel, Judah and Benjamin. Judah is the largest of the two, and so that's where the southern kingdom gets its name. The capital of Judah is Jerusalem. And of course, we know Judah, and particularly Jerusalem, is Isaiah's focus. It's almost his entire focus, all right? Now, I've told you this before. It bears repeating. The kings of Judah are part of the Davidic dynasty. They are the kings in the line of David, all right? I told you last week, by the time Uzziah dies, Assyria, there's two bad guys we're always looking out for in the book as we study the book of Isaiah. There's Assyria and Babylon. All right, Babylon's not happening yet. Right now, Assyria is happening. Assyria is happening. It's becoming a real threat to all of these smaller kingdoms in the region of Palestine, including Syria, Israel, Judah, all of which are mentioned in this passage. Now, what we're told in verse 1 is that the way the northern kingdom of Israel was going to deal with the threat of Assyria is they're going to join up with Aram or Syria, all right? Now, that's a very interesting alliance. Those were basically enemies, but the only way they felt like we can, can really gain power and, and not be defeated by Assyria is if we join forces. So they're doing that. The problem with that plan of this Syrian-Israeli alliance that potential flaw is Judah down there to the south. Because if Ahaz, now if Ahaz joins them and joins their alliance, so it would be Israel, Judah, and Syria, we're gold. Everything's fine. We, are pow- we have enough power to not be overcome by Assyria. But if Ahaz joins up with Assyria, big problem because now Syria and Israel are going to be sandwiched in between two hostile forces, all right? So this is what the northern kingdom decides to do. Like, we're going to go in, and we are going to force Judah to join our alliance by taking out Ahaz and putting a puppet king in his place, all right? So that is the plan, and that is why at the end of verse 1, they're going to go against Jerusalem. Now, we're told they're right there. They were not able to conquer it, but they sure want to, and they're, they're putting pressure on, um, on Judah and Jerusalem. Let's read on and see what happens. Verse 2. When it became known to the house of David that Aram, which is another name for Syria, had occupied Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, And the hearts of his people trembled like trees of a forest shaking in the wind. And the Lord said, go out with your son, Shear, Yashub. I didn't practice these names well enough, you guys. Shear, Yashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the launderer's field. And say to him, calm down and be quiet. Don't be afraid or cowardly because of these two smoldering sticks the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. For Aram, along with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia, has plotted harm against you. They say, let's go up against Judah, terrorize it, and conquer it for ourselves. Then we can install Tabil's son as king on it. And this is what the Lord God says. It will not happen. It will not occur. 
The chief city of Aram is Damascus. The chief city of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. So the northern kingdom is going to be wiped out. The chief city of Ephraim is Samaria, and the chief of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. And here's the key. If you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. All right, so in this passage, we're going to be presented with two very different perspectives on this situation. I'm calling them Perspective A and Perspective B. Now, Perspective A is reality. This is what's actually true. All right, and that... Uh, is what God has sent Isaiah to communicate to Ahaz. And here is perspective A in one little line. Divine promises are greater than human purposes. And that's there on your listening guide. Perspective A, divine promises are greater than human purposes. Yes, Assyria is on the horizon. Yes, they are a massive threat. Yes, Syria and Israel have conspired against Judah and planned to overtake Jerusalem in order to get Ahaz out of the way. All of that stuff is true. All of that stuff is happening. But those human purposes are no match for God's promises. And in verse 3, Ahaz is checking out the water supply, which is what kings do when they're expecting their city to come under siege. He's out there checking things out. God sends Isaiah to him. Isaiah's not alone. He has this son. If you have, um, your Bible should have a footnote tell you what that name means. It means a remnant will return. And you're like, what's the significance of that? And of course, Isaiah's not going to tell us now what the significance of that is. It shows up later, and we'll get to that in a few chapters, just like Isaiah's fashion. Keep reading. I'll fill you in, right? He's always putting the cookies on the top shelf, (laughs) never just like giving it to us. We have to do the work. We have to keep reading. But look at what God tells Isaiah to say. Verse 4, calm down and be quiet. A more literal reading of that is be careful to do nothing. Make sure you do nothing. (laughs) Don't be afraid or cowardly. In other words, trust God. He is going to fight for you. And then look at the second part. Why, why should you not be afraid or cowardly, how cowardly? Well, because these two smoldering sticks is what he calls them. What comes to my mind are like burned out cigarette butts. You know? Whatever image Ahaz has conjured up in his mind of Aram and Israel's power uh, to carry out their plan and invade Jerusalem. And we as humans have a way of inflating things in our minds. I'm sure it was a very scary image. And God says, look, I've got a new image for you. It's not nearly as scary as yours. Smoldering sticks. That's all they are. Now in verses 5 and 6, the plan of Syria and Israel is reiterated. Take a look again at verse 7. Very important. This is what the Lord God says. All right, anything that starts with that is very important. This is what the Lord God says. So straightforward. It will not happen. It will not occur. Now, you don't need a commentary for that. You don't need to, like, look up the Hebrew. It is, like, super clear, right? They've made all these plans. It's not going to happen. They are not going to come in and take over Jerusalem and put a puppet king in your place. It's not going to happen telling you that right now.
well, because God's promises are greater than human purposes. That's why that is true. And this good news comes with a very stern warning, doesn't it? We saw that at the end of verse 9. If you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. Ahaz and the people of Judah had reached the point of no return. We kind of talked about this in our first week together. It is decision time. Very truly, the message here is, trust me or else. Judgment is coming. It's coming. All right, so that's perspective A. Let's take a look at perspective B. Perspective B is represented by how Ahaz sees the situation. Look at verse 2. It says, when it became known to the house of David that Aram had occupied Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the hearts of his people trembled like trees of a forest shaking in the wind. Now notice that Ahaz is not referred to by name here. He's referred to as the house of David, both here and in verse 13. And that's because Isaiah wants us to have that 2 Samuel 7 promise passage in our minds. He wants us to be thinking about the promise that God had made to David that his dynasty would never end, that a king would sit on his throne forever and ever. Ahaz is part of that promise, you guys. He is a descendant, a direct descendant of David, and because of that, he has every reason to believe that when God says, it will not happen, it will not occur, I will not let them wipe out Jerusalem. God is telling the truth, right? But instead of confident trust, instead of leaning into that promise, Ahaz was terrified. He is terrified. He's out checking the water supply. He's just, he's, 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 he's fearful. And take a look at what God offers him in verse 10. This is absolutely mind-blowing. It says, then the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. So not only does God send Isaiah to Ahaz with a word of hope, he actually gives Ahaz the opportunity to choose his own sign. Now, a sign is simply an event that confirms a promise. This is the only place in the entire Bible where a human is given this kind of offer. Whatever you want. Think about a time in your life when you've been riddled with anxiety over an uncertain future, a decision that you had to make. And you're just doing your best to, like, search the scriptures and navigate what what move you need to make. I mean, imagine, imagine first God sends a prophet to you to, like, assure you that God's got this. And then he's like, And you know what? I really want to assure you. I really want to bolster your faith. So whatever sign you want, we'd be like, yes! Yes! Ahaz's response is not that. (laughs) And this is where we see that faith is not a matter of evidence. People don't walk away from God because there isn't enough proof. Walk away from God because they want to. Right? (laughs) Look at Ahaz's response. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask because I will not test the Lord. Now, it sounds really godly. And we do have other parts of Scripture that warn us against putting the Lord your God to the test. So he's like quoting Scripture here, you guys. Getting all spiritual with it. 
but it's a ruse. And Isaiah assumes that we know passages like 2 Kings 16, and I think it's 2 Chronicles 28? 28, okay. Um, So those two chapters will tell us in a little more detail that Ahaz has an ace up his sleeve. And that ace is an alliance with the king of Assyria. Perspective B is this. Human purposes are greater than God's promises. In Ahaz's mind, the only way to secure Jerusalem is to play nice with Assyria. So instead of taking care to do nothing like God had said, instead of resting in the clear word of God, Instead of trusting that God would fight for him, he chooses to take matters into his own hands and seek salvation by his own works rather than by faith. This is the chance of his lifetime to treat God as God. And he utterly fails because he can't see beyond the political and military situation of his day. Now, I want to go ahead and pause here in order to draw some connections because this isn't just a bunch of history. Like, what is going on here is a model of what we go through all the time. We are not kings of nations, but we face crises of faith all the time. Every single day. In big ways and small ways, we're faced with the question of whether or not we believe God is enough. And every single day, we act on that answer. We're not necessarily conscious of that, but that question is being thrown out, and we are answering in the way we are living our lives. Is God enough or is he not? And how do we access the enoughness of God? Faith. Faith, that's why he says, if you don't stand firm in your faith, you don't stand at at all. Faith is the key that unlocks this massive storehouse of God's infinite resources. It's the only key that unlocks it. And so here's the question every single one of us need to answer based on what we're reading here. It's so basic. I'm pretty sure it got asked in, like, the preschool Sunday school Sunday. (laughs) So basic, so simple. How is God calling me to trust him today? How is God calling you to trust him today? The same question, worded a little bit differently, kind of the flip side of it, is how is God calling me to not trust myself today? How is God calling me to not step in? (laughs) How is God calling me to not lean on my own understanding? How is God calling me to not turn to some other handmade savior? Right? Same question, different way of wording it. I think another thing we all need to go home and really process is what perspective have we embraced? Perspective A or perspective B? And A has a struggle between standing on Isaiah's word, which is God's word, and turning to Assyria for help illustrates for us one of life's most significant areas of tension. Believing God versus believing our circumstances. And make sure you understand both of them are saying something. 
God is speaking and our circumstances are also speaking. In fact, I don't know about you, I'm in a season, my current circumstances, I cannot get them to shut up. (laughs) I have a seven-year-old with significant neurobehavioral challenges who a lot of days refuses to go to school. We have tried homeschooling. That was a train wreck. There are no private schools around here resourced to deal with his challenges. And you know what my circumstances scream at me all day long? You are running out of options, and there is nobody who can help your kid. <laughs> there's no therapist. There's no psychiatrist. There's no, that's, that's, that's what my circumstances are telling me. And at this point, it is really easy to catastrophize my child's entire life. And I tell you that not to elicit sympathy or any of that stuff. I tell you that because I want you to know you are not the only one who is listening to the voice of circumstances. And it is extremely depressing. It is extremely, feels extremely hopeless. And it is very different than what this book is telling us. Very different than what God is saying. And so we live in that tension. This is what my circumstances are telling me. This is what God is telling me. They're very different messages. Very different messages. How do we resolve the tension? We choose to believe God. We just, we, we, we believe God. We position ourselves to where I'm going to make sure that God's voice is louder. I'm going to surround myself with people who will help me make sure God's voice is louder. I'm going to open the Bible. I'm going to read it to make sure that God's voice is louder. My music I listen to, the podcast I listen to, I'm going to make sure God's voice is heard because my circumstances will not shut up. And so I've got to drown that out. This voice has to be louder than God's voice, right? That's how we resolve the tension. But, man, we've got it. That tension is so, so real, so real. And Ahaz gives us such a picture of it. And that's what's going on. His circumstances are speaking very loudly. So is God. What does he choose to listen to? His circumstances, right? And that's what's going on there. Now, you see on your listening guide, kind of as we're, we're, we're flowing along, and, and again, I think I've told you, I've done like really cute alliterated outlines in the past. These are just huge chunks of scripture. So I'm just kind of each week trying to get you a flow of the text kind of the best I can do, because this is hard for me too, you guys. <laughs> Isaiah is a beast. It's beautiful. I'm loving it, but it's, it's hard. It's a lot of work. So I'm just thinking, like, ever get an outline for you. So anyway, uh, but if you move on, you'll see that Ahaz's unbelief reaps disaster. That's kind of where we are in our outline. Look at verse 13. Isaiah said, listen, house of David, it is not enough for you, or is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God? Now notice that pronoun change. My God, it's not Ahaz's God anymore. Remember, Isaiah has said, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you do not stand firm at all. There's a shift that's happened here. In verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. By the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating curds and honey. Now, any time I, I hear honey, I think milk and honey. I think promised land imagery, abundance, beauty. Good. No, curds and honey, different image. This is, this is the food of poverty, all right? This is this, this 
child is born into the poverty of his people. He'll be eating curds and honey. Uh, for the boy knows, for before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. The Lord will bring on you, your people, and your father's house such a time as has never been since Ephraim separated from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Now, you and I read verse 14, virgin will conceive, have a son, name Emmanuel. We automatically read that in light of Matthew 1.23. For us, this is a beautiful sign. It is like Christmas card material, right? And Emmanuel means God with us. It's a glorious idea. But in this context, for Ahaz, this is a terrible sign. God is telling Ahaz that his plan to play nice with the king of Assyria is going to backfire. The Savior is going to become his enemy. And we don't have time to read it, but the rest of chapter 7 describes destruction, terrible destruction, that is going to take place as Assyria invades the northern kingdom and is going to press in to Judah as well. Now, we know based on Matthew 1.23 that the sign of 714 is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. That is 700 years removed from Ahaz, you guys. And yet he says before he learns to reject what is bad, like we're given time cues. This kid's going to be born, and before this happens, this is going to happen. So there's a big question as to whether there was a more immediate fulfillment as well. So there's an immediate fulfillment in the time of Ahaz, and then the secondary, more significant fulfillment in the time of Christ. There's several views on this. None of them are without major problems. But I want you to take a look at chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Then the Lord said to me, Take a large piece of parchment and write on it with an ordinary pen, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. And that is another name, another son. Uh, it means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. It's actually four words. Quick, plunder, swift, spoil. I have appointed trustworthy witnesses, the priest uh, Uriah and Zechariah, son of something. Uh, I was then intimate with the prophetess, that's his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, name him Maher Shalal Hasbaz, again. Quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. For the, before the boy knows how to call father or mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoils of Samaria will be carried off to the king of Assyria. All right, so another child is born. And the structure of verse 3 that I just read definitely mirrors, in many ways, the structure of 714. You have the similar time cues happening. You'll notice that even though this child is not called a sign, he is connected with the title Emmanuel. And here's the connection. The name means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil, pointing to the fact that Assyria is going to wipe out the northern kingdom. That's what's described in verses 6 and 7. Now Ahaz can't just say, ah, no big deal. I don't care what happens up there. Because in verse 8... We see that the flood of destruction is going to overflow and affect Judah as well. In fact, it's going to be up to his neck. Only the head is spared. What is the head? It's Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem. It's going to be spared. Why? 
last word in verse 8, at least in my translation. Right? These flooded banks will fill your entire land, comma, Emmanuel. So there we have a connection between Isaiah's son, this judgment name, right, and Emmanuel, all right? Um, Immediate fulfillment of the Emmanuel sign is probably the son of Isaiah. The ultimate and certainly more significant fulfillment would be um, in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Again, there are problems with that view. We're going to hold it with a loose hand, but it doesn't seem like it's just coincidence. There's all the son being born, and we have all these connections. So um, I, that's, that's the view that I hold. But again, let's hold it with a loose hand. Now, as we move on into verse 11, Isaiah really starts to develop his concept of a remnant. All right? It says, For this is what the Lord said to me with great power to keep me from going the way of this people. Do not call everything that is a conspiracy that these people say is a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. You are to regard only the Lord of armies as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. He will be a sanctuary. But for the two houses of Israel, he will be a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over and a trap and a snare to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over these. Many will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captures. Bind up the testimony. Seal up the instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will wait for him. Skip, wait for him. Skip down. Um, it talks about the, the, the people, these people. Um, verse 19, when they say to you, inquire of mediums and spiritists who chirp and mutter, shouldn't the people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Go to God's instruction and testimony. That is to be your source of wisdom. That is to be what you consult. So I'm going to go ahead and stop there for the sake of time. Now, here's what we need to know about the remnant. Verse 11, this people, he says, um, here's what the Lord said to me to keep me from going the way of this people. The this people is the not the remnant. That is not the remnant. It's everybody else. So a distinction is made between this people who are getting all caught up in the political alliances and the threat of Assyria. Think of that person you know that just like they just sit and watch the news all day long. All day long, right? So they're getting all caught up in all of that stuff. And, and, and the contrast is drawn between those people and others um, and, and Isaiah and others like him who feared the Lord and regarded him as holy. For them... The Lord will be a sanctuary. For everyone else, he's going to be a stone to stumble over, a trap, and a snare. Interesting, same Lord, two very different experiences. And here's a really important takeaway, and I've tried to think of a good way. I feel like this is, anyway, I'm going to throw it out there, and then I'll clarify. The remnant is not made up of people who trust God in contrast with people who reject God. It's not the contrast that's being drawn here. The remnant is made up of people who actually really trust God in contrast with people who merely claim to trust God. In other words, a contrast isn't drawn between a remnant and full-on pagans, but between a remnant and the religious. 
everybody Isaiah is talking to considered themselves to be God's people. Everyone is filling a pew on Sunday morning, so to speak, in, in terms that we would understand. But not everyone was actually walking in faith and repentance. And I mention that because it's really easy to think you're part of the remnant when you are actually not. External religious practice is not the test. Faith, fear of the Lord, and a heart to hear and obey his word. That, those are the qualities of God's remnant. Now, one more thing I want to say about the remnant before we move on. Make sure you do not miss the fact, and we're going to see this through the whole book of Isaiah. The remnant was not spared hardship. They were not spared the hardship of judgment. They were spared the hopelessness of judgment. And that's a really important distinction. They were not spared the hardship. They were spared the hopelessness. They went through the same stuff as everybody else. And we need to take care. We're Americans. We are obsessed with suffering avoidance. We can build entire theologies on that obsession. It can color the way we read things in Scripture. Um, and so we need, to be, we need to take care to realize that the Bible is constantly recalibrating that mindset that we tend to come to the scriptures with. Like, oh, like people like Isaiah, the really faithful people, they went through the exact same. Like they were carried off to Babylon too, you guys. It wasn't like God had like a special like, I don't know, monastery. All you really good people, all you remnant, the, the, the faithful, the repentant, the ones who really love me, who love my word, I'm going to cloister you over here, and all the destruction is going to come, but you're going to be safe from it. No. That's not what happens. I mean, that's what we wish would happen. That's what if, if, if we as Americans were planning all of this, the, the, the good ones would be spared, all the bad stuff, and, you know, everybody else, would, the ones who deserve the judgment would get it. That's, not, that's just not what happens. I think that's an important principle. Um, I'm not going to get into it here, but even as you study, like, eschatology and different views of the end times, keep that in mind. A lot of views that we as an American church have embraced, I think, are very much rooted in our obsession with suffering avoidance. I remember when I got to seminary, I was like, what? Like, none of my favorite theologians believe in a rapture? That's weird. Where do we come up with that? Americans do not tolerate anything that would say that we as born-again people are going to suffer. We just don't tolerate that kind of stuff. It doesn't fit in our mindset. It doesn't fit in our, in our, we don't have a category for that. Now, I'm not saying there's no rapture. Do not hear me say that. There are valid, solid arguments for that. I'm not saying that. But I am saying there are, that is a relatively new idea, and it is a very Western idea. All right? Go forth and do with that what you will. That was not in my notes. I wasn't going to say it. I couldn't stop myself. Couldn't stop myself. All right. Now I need to read, I need to read, um, I need to read verses 21 and 22, and then we're going to get into chapter 9, and I really got to speed up. All right. They will wander through the land. This is talking about the, not the remnant, everybody else. They will wander through the land, dejected and hungry. When they are famished, they will become enraged. Looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. They will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, gloom, and affliction, and they will be driven into thick darkness. So that is the utter hopelessness that the remnant is spared from. They see a very different picture. 
same circumstances, they're going to see a very different picture. Look at verse 9. Nevertheless, that is a beautiful nevertheless. I love that word. Nevertheless, contrast. The gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of Jordan, into the Galilee of the nations. Let's talk about those geographical references for a second. All right, so when you had an invader, even if they were an invader from the east, they couldn't pass through. There's this desert to the east of Israel. And so they would come up around and they would invade from the north. And so the... The first stop was always Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the region of Galilee. They always got hit the first, and they got hit the hardest. And so God is saying, you're not always going to be the, the, um, bear the brunt of the, the, the siege. Like, there's actually going to come a day where something really good happens in, in that part of, of Israel. That really good thing we know is Jesus, right? Um, but he's going to honor that region who has taken such a hard hit. So there's, there's a really beautiful redemptive um, element there in those words. All right, moving on to verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned in those living in the land of darkness. That should take you back to, like, creation, darkness, light. There's a recreation happening. Verse 3, you have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you. They rejoice at the harvest time, and they rejoice when dividing the spoils. So what's the emphasis there? Joy. So much joy. Verse 4, for you, God, have shattered the oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did in the day of Midian. So there's there's freedom from oppression happening. Verse 5, for every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. So all the tools of war burned up, destroyed. We have peace. We have true shalom happening. Verse 6, why is all this stuff happening? Well, here's why. For a child will be born for us. Do you think we're supposed to relate this to the child of chapter 7? You bet we are. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. How's God going to defeat the bullies? Through a baby. Such a strange, strange ways of the Lord. A son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. All right, so this is a king. This is a king. And he will be named. All right, what is the last child's name? We had um, quick, plunder, speed, spoil. Fourfold name of judgment. We have another fourfold name. Very different. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. So this king is divine. Eternal father. Eternal, another divine uh, quality. Prince of peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. Here we go. We've had all those references to David, right? Here we go. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. 2 Samuel 7, bam, there it is. This is the guy that's going to do it. This child is going to fulfill that promise. And how do we know this is actually going to happen? How do we know? Well, the zeal of the Lord of armies 
will accomplish this. So does this depend on our passion? Does it depend on our faith? Does it depend on Israel's passion? Does it depend on Israel's faith? No. It is the passion of God, the zeal of God that is going to accomplish this. Our hearts are divided. God's is not. So if he says, my zeal is going to accomplish something, it is going to happen. <laughs> it is going to happen. So just to recap, there's a recreation. There's abundant joy. There's freedom from oppression. There's true shalom. All of this from a divine king who will reign on the throne of David forever and ever. And what we need to see when we put this together with chapter 7 and chapter 8, the immediate fulfillment of God with us, Emmanuel, is judgment. God is with Ahaz to bring Judah, um, <laughs> to, to bring about Judah's undoing. That's how God was with Ahaz. But remember, for Isaiah, judgment never has the final word, right? Judgment has a purpose, and the ultimate fulfillment of God with us is mercy. It's a purified remnant to which the Messiah will come and accomplish everything that's laid out in chapter 9. So that sign of Emmanuel is actually really complex. There's different facets to it. Now, the rest of chapter 9 through uh, chapter 10, verse 4, pronounces judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel. And then in chapter 10, 5 through 19, we have a very important reminder that Assyria is merely a tool in God's hand, that their power is temporary, the clock is ticking, they are going to be judged as well. We're not going to read that or cover that. Let's pick up in chapter 10, verse 20. Let's see. Okay, we're doing okay. All right, remember, Isaiah met up with Ahaz. He brought his son, the first son mentioned, and his name was a remnant shall return. We're like, what's the deal with that? And Isaiah's like, I'm not going to tell you yet. Okay? Well, here we go. Verse 20. On that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no longer depend on the one who struck them, but they will faithfully depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. The remnant will return. Speaking of the northern kingdom, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. Israel, even if your people are as numerous as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction has been decreed, justice overflows, for throughout the land the Lord God of armies is carrying out destruction that was decreed. In other words, is the destruction that has happened, is it just like, oh no, God didn't see that coming? No. We have these reminders over and over and over again. God planned this. It's part of the plan, people. It's part of the plan. Here we have another reminder. He's carrying out destruction that was decreed. Decreed by who? Decreed by God. And then verse 24, he begins to focus on the southern kingdom. Therefore, the Lord God of armies says this, my people who dwell in Zion, that's Jerusalem, don't fear Assyria. Though they strike you with the rod and raise their staff over you as the Egyptians did, in just a little while, my wrath is going to be spent. My anger will turn to their destruction. And the Lord of armies will brandish a whip against him, as he did when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And he will raise his staff over the sea, as he did in Egypt. Both of those examples given there, the victory was unlikely, and it was unexpected. But God did it anyway. And it's going to be the same way. 
So I'm going to do the same thing. All right, let me see where I, I probably need to skip a few things here. Let's see where we're going to skip. All right, so we've got the remnant will return. Our takeaway from this, I think, if there's one thing we take away from this little section, is that strangely enough, the grace of God in, in purifying this remnant and preserving this remnant is at work through not just the good guys, not just the good times, not just the blessings, not just the things that go right. The grace of God is at work through the Assyrias of the world. What Ahaz saw as a threat to the good of Israel, God uses as a tool to bring the good about. Just like in your opening of this week's material, God uses what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And that is what we are seeing here. And this is why perspective A is the only perspective to have. Because human purposes are a joke in light of God's sovereignty and power. All right? And we see this so clearly in the next section. Let's see. Chapter 10, verse 28. We're getting to chapter 11, you guys. It's going to be so good. All right, verse 28. I love this, all right? So I just, like, read over this the first time, and then I studied it. I'm like, this is really cool. Verse 28, talking about Assyria, and it's kind of picture Assyria is marching closer and closer and closer to Jerusalem. That's where all these cities, if you were to mark them on the map, they're, they're getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. Assyria has come to Aath and has gone through Migron, storing their equipment at Michmash. They crossed over the ford, saying, we will spend the night at Geba. The people of Ramah are trembling. Those at Geba and Saul of Saul have fled. Cry aloud, daughters of Galim. Listen, Lysha. Uh, Ananoth is miserable. Uh, Mad Manah has fled. The inhabitants of Gebim have sought refuge. Today, the Assyrians will stand at Nob. Nob is one mile from Jerusalem. Breathing down their necks. They're shaking their fists at the mountain of the daughter of Zion to the hill of Jerusalem. We are coming to destroy you. But what has God said about that? Ain't going to happen. And now look at the Dark contrast of verse 33 starts out with, my Bible says, look. The word is, behold, like, really look. The Lord God of armies will chop off the branches with terrifying power, and the tall trees will become cut down. The high trees felled. He is clearing the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon with his mighty majesty will fall. So big bad Assyria. A mile away from Jerusalem, guess what? God is going to cut them down. He's going to cut them down. <coughs> and here's the next point on your listening guide. The terrifying, unstoppable power of the enemy is brought to nothing by the terrible, unstoppable power of the Lord of armies. <coughs> I don't know if you guys have driven down. You know, there's all that construction going on in Bloomingdale Avenue as you're going toward Boyette. And there's like Bloomingdale East and Bloomingdale West on either side. <coughs> a little tickle in my throat. Anyway, they, like, went through, and they just, like, chopped off all these trees, like the big old stumps, like, just sticking out of the ground. And you, you drive through, and you're like, oh, my, what? This looks terrible. It's, like, the ugliest road ever. And I think they've finally done a little more clearing. But I remember driving through, and it's like, this is eerie. This is, this is weird. I feel like that is the picture. Thank you so much, Amy. That's the picture that we are given here. That God is just going through Assyria, big, bad, we're going to invade, we're going to take over the world. And he's just like, Pew! 
And that was like Bloomingdale Avenue, just a bunch of stumps, just a bunch of stumps. They don't have tops. There's a bunch of stumps sticking out of the ground. That's the picture that we have. And that is what makes chapter 11 pop. Because you have this image of this barren wasteland of stumps. God has just like stopped Assyria in their track, just wiped them out. But then, chapter 11, verse 1, a shoot will grow from a stump of Jesse. Oh, there's another stump. Do you guys remember that stump? It was barely mentioned a few chapters ago. A root will go, grow from the stump of Jesse. That's David's dad. So we're not just talking about someone from the line of David. We're talking about a new David. And a branch from its roots will bear fruit. We've seen branch before. That was chapter 4. Here we're getting, I see Isaiah's filling us in. A little more information. We had to wait for it, but here it is. From its roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. A spirit of counsel and strength. A spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. But he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed in the land. Now remember, we identified, I think it was our second week together, that was one of the big problems with the leaders of Judah, is there was no justice. If you couldn't pay off the the judge, you, you got nothing. And of course, the poor the fatherless, the widows, the marginalized. It's a terrible, terrible oppression. Well, that is going to completely change. This leader is so unlike the leaders of Judah. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth, and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. So this is an image of his word is effective. He speaks, it happens. Verse 5 gives us a little insight into his character, righteousness, will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. And then look at verse 6. This is probably my favorite part of the whole thing. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion, and the fattened calf will be together. And look at this. A child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young ones will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit and the toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. What's happening here? Well, we got a lot of Eden language going on. And do you remember what God's plan for humans was that we would have dominion over the earth to where even an infant, even a child could tend to all the animals and could tend to the land. Like the earth would be so submissive to humankind, that even a child could tend to it. That's God's design. That's God's intention. We are not supposed to be fighting against this earth to rule and subdue it. It's supposed to be a joy. And so here we are. We're back back to Eden. The full dominion over nature is restored, even to children. The life of nature itself is transformed. And look at this. You You can send your baby to play next to a cobra's pit. Why? curse is removed. Remember that enmity between the serpent and the woman, the curse on the serpent in the garden? That is gone. There's no more enmity anymore. Verse 9, they will not harm or destroy each other. On my entire mountain, 
the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. That word knowledge there is, is relational knowledge. The whole world is going to be flooded with intimacy with God. Again, that, going back to that picture of Eden, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. And then look at verse 10, really interesting. And we'll, we'll just end with this verse. On that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. I told you to be looking for peoples, nations. The nations will look at him for guidance, and his resting place will be glorious. This should take us back to chapter 2. The vision, Isaiah's vision of full redemption includes the entire world. So here we have, I told you, Gentile inclusion in the gospel and the plan of God was not a New Testament idea. Like this is something missions, world missions, has as old as Isaiah. I would say as old as Moses. <laughs> but we see it really clearly here in the book of Isaiah. So not only is Israel going to be regathered, but the whole world is going to be gathered to the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth, where this one will rule and reign forever and ever. I do want to point out in verse 1, he's called the shoot of Jesse. And verse 10, he's called the root of Jesse. So he comes from Jesse. He's Jesse's offspring. He is also Jesse's origin. And that's really significant because this king is Davidic, but he is also divine. Now, who will this be? And how will he accomplish this total restoration of the world? We have to keep reading. We have to keep reading. Now, I told you, uh, I promised you two missionary stories. Here's the second one. Alan Gardiner was an Anglican missionary to the southern tip of South America in the 19th century. I don't know about you, I always think of South America as being hot. The southern tip is not. It's very close to the South Pole, right? Way down there, really, really cold. Well, in 1851, his ship on his journey there was forced to spend the winter in a remote location. There was no access to more food or water. It's bitter cold. A supply ship was sent to relieve them, but it arrived too late, and they all died of starvation and cold. And the very last entry in Alan Gardiner's journal contains this line. This ship is the very Bethel to my soul. I am beyond all power of description. Happy. How in the Well, Alan Gardner, like Ahaz, was given the chance of a lifetime to trust God as God. Unlike Ahaz, he actually did. And because of that, the scene of his greatest crisis was transformed into a place of worship and unexplainable joy. Why? Emmanuel. God was there. God was there. I've benefited tremendously from Ray Ortland's preaching through the book of Isaiah. He's probably one of my favorite, top five at least, favorite preachers. Anything I've said in this whole series that you really love, 
it pro- I probably got it from Ray Orland. It's probably pretty safe to say. But here's what he says that I think is, uh, one thing that he says I think is a very fitting conclusion. I'm quoting here. Emmanuel is more than a name. It's a reality. And if it's your reality, what more do you need? Emmanuel is more than a name. It's a reality. And if it's your reality, what more do you need? And what's the answer, class? Nothing. Nothing. That is the message of Isaiah 7 through 12. God is enough. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for um, how your word has come alive to us. Uh, who knew history was so practical? <laughs> it certainly is because you are the God of history. And so the same God that challenged Isaiah, the same God that commissioned and uh, was continually with, um, that challenged Ahaz and that was with Isaiah, is the same God that is with us. The same God that challenges us. And so, Lord, I pray that in our moment of crisis, that we would be able to say, you know, this has become a very Bethel to my soul. And I am beyond all power of description happy because God is here and because he is enough. So, Lord, just grant us the faith to believe. I pray... I pray that we would just once again be able to enter into that Isaiah 6 experience just to see you for who you are. And that you would grant us the faith to believe that you are who you are, that you will do what you say you will do, and that you will show up in our current circumstances in ways that far, far beyond what we could ask or imagine. And you may not spare us hardship. You may not. But you will spare us the hopelessness. And you will grant us joy. Because you've granted us Christ. And so, Lord, I pray you take all these things, (laughs) a lot of things. And I pray that for each woman in this room, including myself, what is the one thing that you would just drive one thing home that we could take with us and meditate on? and be assured by, and encouraged by, and challenged by. And I pray that as we study your word this week, that you would do it again, and then do it again, and do it again. And as we painstakingly make our way through the very long book of Isaiah, I pray that you would grant us eyes to see the beauty of it, and just again, and again, and again, the beauty of Christ on these pages. He is our hope. He is our Savior, and Lord, we look forward with great longing to the day that he reigns as king over a new heaven and a new earth, and until then, may we be instruments of that those new creation realities wherever you've planted us. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth even now. 
as it is in heaven. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.